Fear is a powerful thing. Thanks for listening to Many Things Considered, a podcast on current politics and relevant political history, where the only thing we'll consider in this episode is fear. Fear itself. I'm Mark Johnson. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Only recently, in the current climate of fear that surrounds refugees, immigrants, terrorism, and American politics, did the irony of Franklin Roosevelt's famous line hit me like a presidential executive order. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. On the occasion of his inauguration in March of 1933, Roosevelt rallied the nation to fight the ravages of the Great Depression by denouncing nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. And yet, here's the irony and the connection to the current political moment. The president who preached fearlessness in 1933 used his awesome power as commander-in-chief in 1942 to, well, to give in to fear. Fear of people not like him, or not like me. My name is Greg Robinson. I'm professor of history at l'Université du Québec à Montréal, University of Quebec at Montreal for the French Challenged. New York-born historian Greg Robinson, I reached him at his office in Montreal, is the author of the definitive account of Franklin Roosevelt's now notorious Executive Order 9066, signed on February 19, 1942, 75 years ago. That executive order authorized the wholesale incarceration in what can only be called concentration camps of upwards of 120,000 Japanese Americans, most of them American citizens. It was one of the most egregious violations of civil liberties in 20th century American history. Even a great humanitarian and a great liberal like Franklin Roosevelt can act based on racial feelings. It's not that he, again, acted directly on his racism, that he didn't hate Japanese Americans and thus, but it flavored his lack of caring and his lack of interest in investigating just how flimsy the case against Japanese Americans really was. In this episode of Many Things Considered, we look back at the history of the president's executive order that was publicly justified on the basis of concern for national security, but was in fact driven by fear and racial animus. It is a dark chapter in our history that echoes in new ways in our own time. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. In Chapter 2 of this episode, we'll consider a place in the rural American West where these two stories, the Japanese-American experience in World War II, and fears about Muslim refugees today have intersected. Locals call the place the Magic Valley, a swath of high desert in south-central Idaho where the local community college in Twin Falls has long sponsored a refugee center helping displaced and frequently desperate people, including children, find a new start in a new world. Just a few miles from where Idaho anti-immigrant protesters have been demanding that the College of Southern Idaho close down its refugee center, Japanese Americans were held behind barbed wires, refugees in their own country, 75 years ago. 
In two instances separated by a lifetime, fear of unfamiliar people in a time of stress over national security came calling on Southern Idaho. Jeff Fox is the president of the College of Southern Idaho that hosts the region's refugee center. In the absence of clear and, and accurate information, people will uh, have those fears. And, uh, you know, that's, that, I think that is, in, in fact, the tension and, and what happens uh, when people's best intentions are, are jeopardized by their deepest fears. More on the current political story of refugees in southern Idaho in the second half of this episode of Many Things Considered. In 1943, the federal government, perhaps concerned about public opinion regarding the relocation of Japanese Americans, made a film, a propaganda film, it was wartime, that attempted to put a benign, careful sheen on the fact that the U.S. Army was guarding Japanese American men, women, and children, grandmothers and grandfathers, in a host of concentration camps from California to Arkansas, including the Minidoka camp in south-central Idaho. Here's an audio portion of the film. It was narrated by Milton Eisenhower, the younger brother of the famous general and future president. Milton Eisenhower ran a government agency called the War Relocation Board. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our west coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. Most were loyal. But no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. This picture tells how the mass migration was accomplished. Neither the Army nor the War Relocation Authority relished the idea of taking men, women, and children from their homes, their shops, and their farms. So the military and civilian agencies alike determined to do the job as a democracy should, with real consideration for the people involved doing a job like a real democracy should. So my name is Tom Ikeda, and I'm the uh, founding executive director of Dancho. Tom Ikeda's parents and both sets of grandparents were relocated in 1942 from the Pacific Northwest and incarcerated at Minidoka on the windy high desert of Jerome County, Idaho. When I think of Dancho in terms of how I would describe it, you know, it's an organization that you know, captures, preserves, and shares the Japanese-American story uh, to promote social justice so this doesn't happen to others. Notices were posted. All persons of Japanese descent were required to register. They gathered in their own churches and schools, and the Japanese themselves cheerfully handled the enormous paperwork involved in the migration. Civilian physicians made preliminary medical examinations. Government agencies helped in a hundred ways. They helped the evacuees find tenants for their farms. They helped businessmen lease, sell, or store their property. Now, this aid was financed by the government, but quick disposal of property often involved financial sacrifice for the evacuees. Again, here's Tommy Ketta. My grandfathers came to Seattle in the early 1900s, around 1906. And, you know, they both came as laborers. You know, my 
grandfather, um, the Ikeda side, my father's side, uh, worked in the salmon canneries, and uh, the father, uh, the grandfather on my mother's side, uh, you know, Kinoshita um, uh, Jichan, uh, worked in the uh, restaurant business. He was a, a waiter and a busboy at the Rainier Club in Seattle. And so after several years in Seattle, they um, actually both returned. They didn't know each other, but they both returned and uh, got married and returned with their uh, wives. And um, in the 1920s and 1930s, you know, they began to have children. Um, on my mother's side, they had six children. And on my father's side, they had three. And, and both families were, were growing and thriving um, you know, by the time the war started, uh, several were in college, uh, and the rest were pretty much in high school uh, when the war started. So that you know gives you just a, a flavor of uh, both sides. And and then when the war started, both families were first uh, uh, taken to the Puyallup Assembly Center, uh, which was named Camp Harmony. It's the um, site of the uh, Western Washington Fairgrounds. And then after several months there, they were then uh, sent to the uh, Minidoka concentration camp, a uh, camp located in Idaho. Um, so that gives you, again, a flavor of, of my family connection. Franklin Roosevelt's executive order was sold as a critical measure addressing national security, a military necessity. But Professor Greg Robinson, his definitive book on FDR's executive order is called By Order of the President, says national security was an explanation, not a reason. There certainly were no documented cases of any disloyal conduct by any West Coast Japanese American. And what's more, uh, there was no great invasion threat from the West Coast. Uh, There was much more danger of hostile action on the East Coast from German submarines and German harassment of shipping, which was uh, widespread, and yet there was no movement to uh, take away Americans of German ancestry. So we can say that that was not the primary motive in what was driving people. What then drove the President of the United States to promulgate such a broad order affecting so many Japanese Americans? Well, it was a mixture of racism and war hysteria and political opportunism. Racism in the sense that on the West Coast of the United States, where most Japanese Americans on the continent lived, there was a long-standing hatred and suspicion of Japanese Americans, partly by people who didn't like those who were not white and partly by people who had commercial motives and self-interested motives for getting rid of their economic competitors. And they had protested against the Japanese Americans even before the war started. And once Pearl Harbor gave legitimacy or cover to their complaints, they pressed forward with that. Meanwhile, military officials on the West Coast were scared of a possible Japanese invasion of the mainland, and they also wanted to be free as as possible of all civilian restraints on their power in their field of action. And they were interested in uh, keeping control as much as possible over the West Coast. And they were opportunistic political leaders. Japanese Americans were a small minority. Most of them couldn't vote because the immigrants were barred from naturalization. And they were a convenient target. The um, government um, commission that looked at the 80s, you know, they gave as the the reasons um, as uh, war hysteria or fear, racial prejudice, and a failure of political leadership. And then the fourth, and I would agree with um, 
Professor uh, Robinson that greed also had a greed or economic considerations had a, a part in that. So, so I would actually um, name four of the issues that really um, were the causes of the incarceration. And so this uh, racism and, and um, antagonism towards Asians all through the late 19th century and earliest 20th century, uh, uh, that's part of Idaho history. Dr. Russ Tremaine grew up in south-central Idaho. He now teaches history at the College of Southern Idaho and has studied and written about the story of Japanese Americans in the 1940s. The idea of moving Japanese from the coast to the interior uh, didn't make any sense. People in Idaho and Montana and Utah reasoned that if it wasn't safe to have Japanese in California and Oregon, then why in the world would it be safe to move them to the interior? And, of course, Governor Chase Clark uh, famously argued against Japanese coming into the intermountain states and claimed that, that if they came to Idaho, they would need to be in behind barbed wire. Meanwhile, in Arizona, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and elsewhere, quarters were being built where they would have an opportunity to work and more space in which to live. When word came that these new homes were ready, the final movement began. I can imagine in 1942 and 1943, in the winter, a day like today here in southern Idaho, it's actually pretty nice, 30 degrees in the 20 mile an hour wind and uh, 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 six or eight inches of snow, it, living in those barracks with a with a coal stove, uh, you know, it must have been a it must have been a nightmare. Again, historian Russ Tremaine. The locals were hostile. I hear that people would go out to the camp like a zoo, and wander around and point finger fingers and yell uh, racist. Uh, racist uh, comments and so it was a nightmare experience for the Japanese that came from Seattle and Portland out here uh, uh, to, to Jerome. Now the miracle is that um, uh, sort of the surviving Minidoka part of that story is that Japanese Americans were immediately put into farm work and they were in great demand. We went from the depression to uh, a labor shortage here in the Magic Valley. So Japanese Americans were put into agricultural work, and most people would say in 1942 and 1943, the agricultural economy in southern Idaho was saved by these internees that w worked from prison and then were released in the day and went out to farms. It has always been remarkable to me that there was such little pushback against Roosevelt's executive order. Nothing, at least not immediately, approaching the kind of spontaneous opposition to Donald Trump's recent executive order banning all refugees and halting travel from seven predominantly Muslim nations. Most Americans outside of the West Coast didn't really know anything much about Japanese Americans. There were only uh, a few thousand Japanese Americans who lived outside of the West Coast on the continent. And most of them probably thought uh, with you know, justification, the government must know what it's doing. If it's, if it's undertaking this large-scale policy, they, there must be some reason for it. And so the very fact that the government acted the way it did made people suspect Japanese Americans. And I think that in the middle of a wartime 
uh, crisis, you know, after Pearl Harbor, and the United States was actually losing the war for a while. Japan was expanding through the Pacific. The Nazis were holding on to Europe. It became uh, very difficult for people to question the actions of the government. Congress, with almost no debate, did provide legal authority for the military to carry out its role under Roosevelt's executive order. Lawsuits eventually challenged the president's action. The Supreme Court upheld the order in a famous case decided in 1944. The majority opinion, ironically, was written by the court's great civil libertarian, Hugo Black, who argued that the president's action had nothing to do with racial prejudice. Justice Frank Murphy's dissent in the case, it's known as Korematsu versus the United States, holds up much better to history's examination of the events surrounding Executive Order 9066. Murphy's scathing dissent said the treatment of the Japanese Americans, quote, falls into the ugly abyss of racism and resembles the abhorrent and despicable treatment of minority groups by the dictatorial tyrannies which this nation is now pledged to destroy. That was written in 1944. Fred Korematsu, who took his case to the Supreme Court, eventually had his conviction for refusing to abide by the relocation order overturned, but that didn't happen until 1983. President Bill Clinton awarded Korematsu the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1998. And here's how that government film, again, it was produced in 1943, sought to shape what must have been a concern at the time about how history would record the rounding up, relocation, and imprisonment of American citizens who were targeted merely because of their ethnicity. The film's narrator, Milton Eisenhower, seems to be promising that the controversial story would eventually be told in full. And he was right. It will be fully told only when circumstances permit the loyal American citizens once again to enjoy the freedom we in this country cherish, and when the disloyal, we hope, have left this country for good. In the meantime, we are setting a standard for the rest of the world in the treatment of people who may have loyalties to an enemy nation. We are protecting ourselves without violating the principles of Christian decency. And we won't change this fundamental decency no matter what our enemies do. But of course, we hope most earnestly that our example will influence the Axis powers in their treatment of Americans who fall into their hands. You know, it's the greatest failure uh, in the history of the Constitution. Now, are we going to make those kinds of mistakes again? Um, uh, so, yeah, I think there's a pretty strong lesson. Is uh, Hunt or Minidoka going to be a lesson that's going to change policy uh, today? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I guess I'm uh, that, that lesson's there to be learned. Uh, are we learning it? My fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong. In 1988, then-President Ronald Reagan signed legislation authorizing a modest payment to survivors of the camps of World War II. The legislation that I am about to sign provides for a restitution payment to each of the 60,000 survivors, Japanese surviving Japanese Americans of the 120,000 who were relocated or detained. Yet no payment can make up for those lost years. So what is most important in this bill has less to do with property than with honor.
for here we admit a wrong. Here we reaffirm our commitment as a nation to equal justice under the law. You know, we are losing uh, touch with this, as probably any you know, historical event that happened you know, now 75 years ago. And so I think it, it you know, kind of behooves us to, um, you know, as historians and people interested in history, to keep reminding people, you know, keep educating them about, you know, these incidences so that, you know, we don't repeat them um, over and over again. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Many Things Considered. We're calling it Fear Itself. Many Things Considered is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and pretty much every place you get your podcasts. We're on Facebook at Many Things Considered. I'm on Twitter at The Johnson Post. That's my blog on politics and history. You can email me if you have a suggestion about a future episode or a comment. We'd love to hear from you. The email is markj, M-A-R-C-J, at Gallatin, G-A-L-L-A-T-I-N-P-A dot com. We'd love to hear from you. We're also dedicated to the proposition that we can better understand our current politics if we also study our political history. Now, Chapter 2. Today, the Minidoka camp in southern Idaho, home to some 13,000 Japanese Americans in the 1940s, is as it was 75 years ago, mostly out of sight and mostly gone out of mind. What little is left of Minidoka is now a national historic site. Historian Rust Tremaine. Gosh, I would uh, guess less than 10% of the Idaho population uh, has any idea uh, of the camp. Um, and again, lots of people don't know that, in, that uh, removal of Japanese ever occurred at all. By contrast, almost everyone in south-central Idaho is very aware of a current controversy. Another controversy driven by fear. Well, we're here today um, in opposition of the refugee program. We, we aren't against the people, we're against the program. That's a young fellow protesting in front of the Idaho State Capitol building in 2015. The security, the vetting process is... Uh, it leaves something to be desired at the very least. The FBI have come out and said that there's no way to screen the, pe the individuals coming from war zones like Syria. And that's all we're here to say is that there, there needs to be a better screening process and we think the program should be halted until there is one in place, until, we can in until they can investigate the program and uh, come up with a better process. Well, you know, the Refugee really Resettlement Program in Twin Falls, again, it's located just about 15 miles from the Minidoka camp, had never been very controversial. That was until a few months ago. As College of Southern Idaho President Jeff Fox explains, the refugee effort at the college dates back to the early 1980s, when the international refugee crisis involved boat people fleeing the economic and political chaos of Southeast Asia. So a number of communities across the nation stepped up, uh, during that crisis, and, and uh, CSI was um, had the opportunity to do that in Twin Falls, and so we've had a refugee center that we sponsored that way for since 1980-something, um, well over 35 years. The College of Southern Idaho is in many ways the pride and joy of Twin Falls. The school enrolls about 7,000 students and has won national titles in men's basketball, women's volleyball, and baseball. The rodeo team, befitting an area dominated by agriculture, 
has won three national titles. The Twin Falls economy is robust. Unemployment is low. Idaho's governor has called it the Magic Valley Miracle. Booming agriculture, food processing, and manufacturing sectors, all industries supported by the college. Some of our successes in the past, we've played a part, certainly not the only part, but played a role in bringing uh, Dell Computers here at one point. Um, Chobani, uh, Cliff Bar, uh, McCain's Food as an expansion, Glambia, um, Idaho Milk Producers uh, uses us uh, quite a bit for workforce training and so on. So uh, very heavily involved in the, the business of the valley, which is agriculture, food production. But to hear some folks tell it in southern Idaho, the college is on the cutting edge of a takeover by radical Islamists bent on imposition of Sharia law, a conspiracy fanned by outfits like the Center for Security Policy, a fiercely anti-Muslim think tank that produces and distributes on the Internet slick video pieces like this one. Not surprisingly, a large number of U.S.-bound refugees are coming from countries with large numbers of people who hate us, including Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and soon from Syria, just to name a few. The U.S. State Department then distributes the refugees... Controversy over refugees in southern Idaho really accelerated when Breitbart, the alt-right website once headed by Stephen Banyan, now perhaps Donald Trump's closest aide in the White House, started focusing on Twin Falls and refugees. Breitbart wrote a series of stories in the late summer of 2016, the middle of the presidential campaign, about what amounted to a phony refugee crisis in Twin Falls. Two of Idaho's most respected journalists have recently examined the Breitbart stories. The Spokesman Review's Sean Vestal wrote recently that the alt-right website had hit upon, quote, a perfect model for how to sell a false story, exaggerate wildly, manipulate statistics egregiously, double down on lies, apply grotesque racist stereotypes. When people who know the facts tell you they're wrong, accuse them of being part of a globalist conspiracy. And bonus points if you can get an alternative universe lawmaker or two to spread your tale. The Breitbart stories, it's hard to call them reporting, made much of the fact that Chobani, the yogurt manufacturer with a major plant in Twin Falls, had committed to hiring refugees to work at its facilities. Chobani's founder is a Turkish immigrant of Kurdish descent. The Idaho statesman's Rocky Barker, a reporter with more time in grade than almost any other in Idaho, wrote in November of 2016, and I quote, Breitbart News came to Twin Falls earlier this year and sought to turn what had been called the Magic Valley Miracle into a nightmare. Latching onto a story anti-Muslim media had erroneously spread across the Internet about Syrian refugees involved in the sexual assault of a child, Breitbart tried to link the story to Chobani, the yogurt maker, who had a successful factory in Twin Falls. Barker noted that Chobani actually paid far higher wages than the average wage in the Magic Valley, helping to increase overall wages in the area as unemployment dipped from 7% to 3%. Amid calls to shutter the refugee program at the College of Southern Idaho, the college attempted to do something that is rarely tried in the current climate of fear over refugees and immigrants. They appealed to reason. A community forum was organized featuring doctors, law enforcement officials, and the refugee center. A thousand people attended. Here's CSI President Jeff Fox. Some of the claims were that this is going to be, you know, we're bringing a diseased population here and we're all going to get you know, sick, 
And the doctor stood up and said, you know, I've been working on this project for many years, and this is among the healthiest populations that exist. They've had so many shots <laughs> in order to get here and be vetted uh, that there's not an issue. And then there were concerns about crime, and the chief police stood up and said, you know, we've gone through all the information, and less than 1% of crimes in the past 15 or 20 years when we have, you know, electronic database records were committed by refugees. But interestingly, about 5% of crimes were committed against them. Um, so, you know, one one concern after another, I think, was addressed by the experts in a public forum. Uh, it did bring the community together because um, I will say that, um, like a lot of Idahoans, people want to know the facts. They want to have the information before they make a decision. It's kind of that, uh, you know, unique uh, part of who Idahoans are. But having uh, the facts at their fingertips and being able to make decisions for themselves, I think many people came away with a sense that, yeah, it's okay. And uh, the concerns that they might have had going in, or at least the questions they had going in, were answered. Perhaps the concerns allayed. Uh, not everybody is still comfortable with, you know, uh, we can go deeper on the side of the psychology of the other, you know, a popular concept in literature and philosophy. And uh, the unknown is always a fearful thing. Um, and how we deal with it uh, is kind of up to us. Boise State University's School of Public Service recently completed a public opinion survey in Idaho. The school surveyed 1,000 Idahoans on a variety of issues, including refugee resettlement. Dr. Jeffrey Lyons helped with the survey and analyzed the findings. I would say a majority favor, although amongst the opposition, there appears to be some pretty high intensity of opposition. Specifically, a slim majority, barely 51% of those surveyed, supported allowing refugees to settle in Idaho. And of those opposed, slightly more than 30% strongly opposed any resettlement. So amongst the oldest group, those who are over the age of 65, um, it's majority opposition to refugee resettlement. So amongst that age range, it's about 54% who actually oppose refugee resettlement and only about 40% who favor it. So I would say age is one of the big factors. Uh, partisanship is another one. So Democrats overwhelmingly support refugee resettlement by a margin of about 60 plus points, whereas Republicans appear to oppose it by a margin of about 20 points, um, with independents being, being favorable towards refugee resettlement by a margin of about 10 points. You're probably wondering, as I was, about the numbers in the Twin Falls area. They basically correspond to Idaho as a whole. But this is interesting. The more direct contact Idahoans have with refugees, the more comfortable they are having them in their communities. Here again is Boise State University researcher Dr. Jeffrey Lyons. And what we know is that of those people who have had, who report some level of contact, the contact is, is predominantly positive. So, um, of those who've had contact in their communities, 66% say it's been positive contact, 19% uh, report negative contact, and 14% say neither positive nor negative. And I think what's interesting about that is when we go back and talk about those groups who opposed refugee resettlement, um, so older, older individuals, Republicans, et cetera, even amongst uh, those groups, we see positive opinions about sort of the contact they've had in, in their community. It actually doesn't really matter how old somebody is, where in the state they live, what their party is, or what their gender is. Everybody is reporting positive contact with refugees. 
So maybe we can say that the best antidote to fear, to fear itself, are facts. Knowing a person who seems like a stranger may make them less scary. Debunking scary invented threats can even lead to understanding. And understanding isn't fearing. College of Southern Idaho President Jeff Fox. For my money, the refugee population brings a breath of fresh air to uh, this this corner of uh, rural America, and allows you know the, the the citizens and certainly my students uh, and me to understand the the human condition in ways that you know uh, we wouldn't be able to understand it otherwise. Some of my best students were those students who came from Bosnia or or, or other countries that were uh, war torn. Um, and their experiences and their ability to write about their experiences were uh, deeply impactful. And their stories about the human condition and the power of family and uh, survival are inspirational and have um, impacted, I think, so many people in the Magic Valley, all the way from school kids who hear these stories to their their uh, classmates and others in the community as we look at, the, at these people who came with nothing and have uh, made a life. Um, they bring languages and they bring ideas and they bring cultures and foods and music and uh, and and dress and uh, just amazing things to uh, a really fine community and make it even better. But as I noted at the top of this episode, fear is a powerful thing and fear can be popular and misinformation can be popular too. So here are some facts. Donald Trump won 59% of the presidential vote in Idaho, and it's pretty clear that his key demographic, older, rural, conservative voters, have fully embraced his rhetoric of fear about refugees and immigrants. But there's also this. Key parts of Idaho's economy, production of agricultural products and milk, for example, disproportionately depend on Hispanic laborers. The state's technology industry recruits the technically savvy from India and China. Like everywhere else in the country, immigrants provide key links in the economy. The Boise State Opinion Survey found, by the way, that most Idahoans think refugees actually damage the economy. That is not a fact. Here's one fact. The state's overwhelmingly Republican political leadership has declined to condemn the Breitbart misinformation campaign regarding refugees in Twin Falls. That campaign has spawned death threats, and what reporter Sean Vestal has described as, I quote, a world where there is no difference between a terrorist and a refugee and a Muslim child. The Southern Poverty Law Center, they track domestic hate groups, recently released a new assessment of the growth of such groups in America and concluded that anti-Muslim groups have tripled in the last year. Several such groups have been identified in southern Idaho. The Idaho congressional delegation and the state's governor have voiced support for Donald Trump's executive order on immigration and travel. As this is recorded, that order remains on hold after review by several federal judges. The governor has said he believes Christians should be favored before others when it comes to immigration. Fact. Chobani, the yogurt manufacturer with a plan in Twin Falls founded by an immigrant, has joined the lawsuit challenging Trump's order. And here's one more fact. Shortly after the November 2016 election, the spokesman for the super PAC that supported Donald Trump actually suggested that Japanese-American internment in the 1940s was a precedent for the president to order a registry or other effort directed at Muslims. Here's that exchange between Carl Higby and Fox News' Megyn Kelly. 
Yeah, and, and perfectly, perfectly honest, it is legal. They say it'll hold constitutional muster. I know the ACLU is going to challenge it, but I think it'll pass. And we've done it with Iran back uh, back a, a while ago. We did it during World War II with Japanese, which, you know, call it what you Come will, on. maybe, maybe you're wrong. Not, you're not proposing we go back to the days of internment camps, I hope. No, no, no. I'm not proposing that at all, Megan. But what I am you know saying is that we need to protect that. America I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that gets people scared, Carl. Right. But it's, I'm just saying there is precedent for it. And I'm not saying I agree with it. But in this case, I absolutely believe you that a regional base... You can't be citing base... Japanese internment camps as precedent for anything the president-elect is going to do. Look, the president needs to protect America first. And if that means having people that are not protected under our Constitution have some sort of registry so we can understand until we can identify the true threat and where it's coming from, I support it. You, you get the protections once you come here. All right. Carl, good to see you. In December of 1942, the Gallup polling organization asked Americans if the relocated Japanese Americans should ever be allowed to return, ever allowed to return to their Pacific Coast homes after the war was ended. 48% of Americans believed the detainees should never be allowed to return, and just 35% said they should be allowed to go back. Fear is a powerful thing. Here again is historian Greg Robinson. We really need to uh, organize as, as people and to not lose sight of this story because it is our, again, our ideal case against racial profiling, against the various kinds of undemocratic conduct that the people around Trump are just now suggesting. Many Things Considered is supported by Gallatin Public Affairs, operating at the intersection of government, politics, business, and the media in the Pacific Northwest and beyond for more than 25 years. Our website is Many Things Considered. Spread the word if you enjoyed this episode. Greg Robinson's book about Executive Order 9066 is called By Order of the President. It was published in 2001 by Harvard University Press. Robinson's research has also resulted in pathbreaking works on little-known Japanese internments in Canada and Latin America. Historian Russ Tremaine's book on the Idaho role in internment is called Surviving Minidoka. Russ has long been involved in organizing an annual conference on civil liberties that has become important as a means of focusing ever-new attention on the Japanese-American story and what we can learn from that story. I'll give the last word in this episode to Tom Ikeda, the executive director of the Seattle-based organization called Densho. You can find more on the web, including oral histories and a vast archive of primary sources at Densho, that's D-E-N-S-H-O dot O-R-G. At the end of our recent interview, Tom Ikeda related a particularly poignant story about one of his uncles, his name was Bako, who was incarcerated at the Minidoka camp in Idaho. And uh, he was at the University of Washington in Seattle when the war started and was um, a student enrolled in ROTC courses. And you know, when, the, um, uh, when they were placed in camp, so he first went to uh, the Puyallup Assembly Center and then the uh, Mandoka Concentration Camp, um, at the first uh, possible time when he could volunteer to serve for the U.S. Army, you know, he, he did so. And... Um, um, and because of his ROTC uh, training, he was made a staff sergeant um, 
you know, normally he would have been made a, a second lieutenant or an officer, but um, in the um, infantry, they didn't allow Japanese Americans to become officers uh, during that time. And so he was made a staff sergeant, served, um, you know, in the 442nd, a segregated uh, Japanese American unit. And in um, Italy, um, you know, on the battlefield north of Rome, he was, um, you know, killed by a sniper's uh, bullet. And um, while all this was happening, you know, my grandparents and uh, Baco's siblings were incarcerated at Minidoka. And I have this photograph um, of my grandparents on this dusty field. Uh, it was in a fire break between the, the barracks uh, where it looked like there were thousands of people at the memorial service for my, my uncle. And in that picture, they're accepting the American flag. And and so you know, I, could, I could just imagine the heartbreak. You know, here they had worked so hard to you know come to this country, had been here you know since the early 1900s. Um, the government, because of their Japanese ancestry, you know didn't allow them to become U.S. citizens, or naturalized U.S. citizens. Uh, then they're placed in a concentration camp. Their eldest son is killed in action. You know, fighting for the country that you know essentially is imprisoning them. Um, and then in 1952, the first um, moment when Japanese immigrants could become naturalized U.S. citizens, you know, my grandparents were first in line. And, and so when you know, people sort of question you know, these foreigners uh, who come from different uh, countries and may not look like them and may have, you know, think they have different loyalties, you know, when I go to schools, you know, I show them that picture of my grandparents and say, you know, this is what an American looks like. Um, you know, these are individuals who really understand and cherish and work towards being a citizen of this country. You know, so many of us are citizens by birthright, and I think we take it for granted. But when I think of my, my parents and the sacrifices and work they did to become U.S. citizens, I mean, that, I think, is the strength of this country. And, and so I tell that story because I know there are people who don't know, uh, say, the, the Muslim community or um, the other ethnic communities and didn't know the Japanese. And their first, uh, I think, um, impulse, because they don't know any better, is to say, well, these people must be different. You know, they perhaps aren't as American or they don't have the same loyalties. And, you know, I, I just think we need to take a look at that because I, I do know people in these various communities and they are as uh, patriotic and loyal to the United States as anyone else. And, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. That is what an American looks like. Until next time, I'm Mark Johnson. Thanks for listening.